Thank you, Larry. You know, there are times when we're having our time of visiting that I like to step away from the crowd and just listen to the hubbub. It's a beautiful, beautiful sound. Not able to understand the words, but just the hubbub of, of the love of God that's being shared. 1996, we were going through a real time of trouble here in the church, and we had three days of prayer. And one of the things that was prayed in one of those meetings was a plea to God to give this church a baptism of love. And I believe that's happened. Thank you, Lord. We had an ORU student visit one time and said, I'll tell you, that's the most boring worship service I've ever been in. Of course, he was used to one of those churches where worship was rock and roll. But he said, I've never been loved anywhere like I have in that church. So that's of God, isn't it? It certainly is not of us. And that really fits what I feel the Lord would have me in this Christmas season bring today. If I speak of the tongues of men and angels that do not have love, I become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give my possessions to feed the poor, even if I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not behave itself unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take account of wrongs suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If they're gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If they'll tongues, they'll cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I also am fully known. Now abideth faith, hope, Love, but the greatest of these is love. When I was a boy growing up in Muskogee, Oklahoma, attending first Irving grade school and then Alice Robertson Junior High and then Muskogee 
Central High School, the custom throughout all of those 12 years was to begin by standing at attention, saluting the flag, and reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. And then while we remained standing, the teacher would always read a chapter of Scripture, and then we would pray the Lord's Prayer every day for 12 years in a public school. That's the way it used to be. Sad it isn't true now. But you know, the chapters always were familiar ones, and of course in those days, the King James Version Chapters such as the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or Psalm 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Or Psalm 100, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. But you know the scripture reading that I love to hear most was 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> I love to hear it because to me it was beautiful, especially in the King James, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. <laughs> Those were beautiful words to me as a child. And you know, even today, for me, 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most beautiful pieces of literature that I have ever read or have ever heard. Now, why did Paul write these 13 verses? What is the background and the motivation? The Corinthian church was probably the largest church that came to, into existence as a result of Paul's ministry. Now, we have to say probably because these things are estimates and no one can be certain, but it was a very large church. It was a very lively church. It was a church filled with people who were immature spiritually because they were new in Christ. And it was a church that was full of problems. Now, it would be wrong for us to rejoice that the Corinthian church had a lot of problems, but we're tempted to do so because in response... Paul wrote many things that guide us in theology and guide us in what our teaching should be and how to conduct ourselves in the church. Problems in Corinth came from several sources. First was just Corinth itself. Corinth had been a major power and a major mercantile power and really a major military power. But in 146 B.C., the Romans under General Maximus totally destroyed the city. The men were all beheaded, the women and children sold into slavery, and Maximus totally torched the city. And for a hundred years, it was unoccupied. And then in 44 B.C., the city was refounded. And one of the reasons it was refounded was to provide a place for retired Roman soldiers. When Rome was moving toward its heyday, in order to be a soldier, you had to provide your own armor, your own weapons. If you were in the cavalry among the equestrian class, you had to provide your own horse. But when Gaius Maximus became the first man in Rome, he realized that the empire was moving out in such a way they needed more soldiers, and so he offered the opportunity for the common man 
to join the army. And then the government began to fund the army of Rome. But what did you do with these veterans after they retired? They didn't have farms to go back to. They didn't have property to go back to. And so various places were established around the Roman Empire as colonies where these retired soldiers could go and live. One was Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony where the retired soldiers could go and live. And Corinth was reestablished. And one of the reasons to reestablish it was to provide a place where these retired military men could go and spend out their lives. It was located on the Isthmus of Corinth, just to the western edge. And the Isthmus of Corinth was very vital because here was one sea coming down from the north from Rome itself. Here was a southern sea coming from the rest of the Mediterranean area And here was the isthmus with a large piece of land. And so for ships to get from here to here, they had to sail around this large piece of land and then head north. But even as at one point someone decided to build the Panama Canal so ships would not have to sail all the way around Argentina, the isthmus of Corinth, they did a very unusual thing. They didn't dig a canal, but they actually created a means where overland they could move large ships from one sea to the other. There were two ports, one on the north and one on the south. And Corinth was filled with sailors and merchants and people from all over the world and also great pleasure seekers. We've seen the commercials on television about Vegas. Whatever you do stays in Vegas. Well, Corinth was that way. It became a place of great debauchery. It became a place of religion, and much of the religion was sexually expressed. And so there were temple prostitutes, and as worshipers came to worship, they participated with the prostitutes, and thus, in their minds, they were having sex with their God. A horrible, horrible place. One of the main gods was Iran. Iran was a god that when you worshipped Iran, you completely became lost in ecstasy. You lost control of yourself. It became such a place of debauchery that throughout the Roman Empire, if a person were seen to be behaving in an immoral manner, it was said he's behaving like a Corinthian. And so one of the problems of the Corinthian church was these Corinthians that came into the church had so been programmed by their culture that they brought some of that thinking into the church. Another problem was the church became quite prosperous, very large and prosperous. And so itinerant teachers moving about would come to Corinth. Here's a place that'll be easy pickings. And some of them were great orators. And so they came to Corinth and they lived there and began their preaching and saying, we are truly apostles and since we're apostles, then you must support us. One way we know Paul is not an apostle, they would say, was he worked with his hands and a true apostle would never do that. And so they fleeced the church and caused division. And then there was just seemed to be a natural tendency toward partyism. After his initial greeting to the church, Paul wrote this, Now I exhort you, brethren, 
by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, there are quarrels among you. And then Paul said, some of you say I am of Cephas, and some say I am of Apollos, and some I am of Paul, and some say I am of Christ. It was a divided church, a church full of parties, <laughs> divided. And then there were social distinctions. When Paul wrote to them, about how they thought they were participating in the Lord's Supper. You should be coming together to partake of the Lord's Supper, in essence, he was saying. But he said, when you come together, it's not. You see, they had begun the practice of having a love feast, in which the church, when they met, they would dine together and have this dinner that supposedly was a sharing of love, but it wasn't that way at all, because the more prosperous shall we say, brought their steaks (laughs) and their pork chops and they sat, as some have studied the houses of that area, probably in a somewhat elevated area where the poor sat and had their bologna sandwiches and maybe bread and butter. And so what should have been an agape, a love feast, became a feast of discrimination and separation, this social class from this social class. And Paul rebuked that. Don't you have houses to eat? And he said, when you come together, you should come together for self-examination as you partake of the Lord's Supper. But social class distinctions prevailed in the church. Also, the spiritual gifts that had been imparted to some of the Corinthians had become occasions of pride, and prideful activity. And really as you read in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, you get a picture of individuals who were totally going against what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in which he said, don't stand on the street corners and pray, and don't blow a trumpet before you, so you'll be praised of men. But go into the secret place, into the inner room, and pray, and there God who hears in secret will reward in secret. But the public display, manifesting tongues, manifesting prophecy, manifesting these gifts in some sort of self-exaltation and jealousy and competition. And so in the very midst of Paul's proscriptions and prescriptions concerning proper decorum in the Sunday service, chapters 12 and 14, he injected this section that we know as 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This morning, let's meditate a little bit on that chapter. We want to meditate on it more than dissect it, more than exegete it even. In a little minute, we'll talk about why. Notice, and I'm, I'm sure most of you are familiar with this chapter, it's just divided into three segments, very naturally falls that way. First is the absolute necessity for love, verses 1 through 3. And then Paul gives a picture of of love, a descriptive picture of love in verses 4 to 7. And then the abiding permanence of love in verses 8 to 13. The absolute necessity for this love. 
Though I speak with tongues of men and angels, have not love. I'm just a bunch of noise. Regardless of what gifts I have, prophecy, knowledge, faith, if I do not have love, in spite of all those things, I'm nothing. And even if I give everything I have to the poor and offer my body perhaps to be burned as a martyr, maybe even as a sacrifice upon an altar, if it's not driven by love, it profits me nothing. What is the love of which Paul writes? It's the Greek word agape. It's interesting, for many years, no one had been able to find this word anywhere in Greek secular literature. And so the conclusion was this was a word that the church invented, perhaps, and gave a special definition. However, now there have been at least three inscriptions found. Two of them are of the Christian era, so perhaps it was taken from Christians, but one was found dating to 27 A.D. But be that as it may, this word is virtually unheard of in secular literature, but it is found 116 times in the New Testament. It's a difficult word really to accurately translate Modern translators wrestle with it because the word love is too ambiguous. Love means all kinds of things to us, doesn't it? You know, I I love to eat. I love the sunset. I love my wife, whatever. Not whatever. When Jerome was producing the Latin version of Scripture, he wrestled with this as well. Where can I find a Latin term to convey the essence of the word agape, and he finally decided to use uh, the word acaris, carendo, which has the idea of valuing something, something that's dear. And when the King James translators wrestled with how to translate the word, they decided to use the word charity. Now, to us today, charity means giving to the poor. But it did not mean that in 1611. It was not so limited. But it had the idea of a giving spirit. And so they chose the word charity. We need to understand that because uh, some folk, if they just say that means giving to the poor, you can give to the poor and uh, that makes acceptable to God. But that's not what the word meant in 1611. Suffice it to say, the word agape is not a word of desire, but it is a word of giving. And that's important to recognize. Sexual love, for example, is a love of desire. And neither is it a word that speaks of personal pleasure, but of giving. For instance, if I I say I love food, that's personal pleasure. But that's not the sense of this word. It's a selfless giving love that this word speaks of. That's illustrated in a number of places in Scripture. But one of the most beautiful is in John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now that phrase begins with the Greek word hutos, which means here is how. 
we say God so loved. What, it, what that is actually saying, God loved in this manner. He gave. Isn't that beautiful? God gave in this manner. He gave. That's agape. Jesus said, greater love, greater agape hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. It's a giving love, not a desiring love. It's a word that implies an act of the will. I can even have agape for somebody I inherently don't like. I can choose to behave and respond and treat that person with agape, even though humanly I may struggle with putting up with his difficult personality. Now, but where does this love come from? Well, one place it comes from is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses, or rather 3, verses 22 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. Fruit. Fruit comes from the inner life of some kind of a plant. And fruit takes a while to develop. The promise to the people on the day of Pentecost was this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And normally that's the way it happens, but God is not bound by our formulas. But normally when we are baptized into Jesus, we do receive at that moment the Holy Spirit in an indwelling presence. And from that point on, that Holy Spirit within us begins to produce fruit. And you notice in Galatians it's not nine fruits, plural. It is singular, fruit. The fruit of the Brayburn apple tree <laughs> it has red skin and white inside and is very firm and has seeds. Those are the characteristics of that fruit. The characteristics of the fruit of the Holy Spirit are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so the list goes. By the way, notice self-control is there also. So the Holy Spirit within produces this fruit. And as we walk with the Spirit, as we abide in Christ, Jesus said as recorded in John 15, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abide in the vine, so you cannot bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And so as we walk with Jesus, abiding in him, seeking to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, that fruit is produced. But as we say, it takes time for fruit to be produced. The longer we walk with God, the more that fruit begins to manifest itself. Think about this. No one has to command the birds to migrate in the fall. It's their instinct to do that. Christians, it is our instinct to manifest agape. And yet, 
because it takes time, all of us are someplace along that continuum, aren't we? We're not fully there. And to the degree we're not fully there, then we manifest agape in obedience to the command. My father was almost an obsessive prankster. He loved to play practical jokes and he would go to great extremes sometimes to pull off practical jokes on people. Here's an example. A neighbor living two doors south of us, we all had big backyards in those days, decided to plant a pecan tree in his backyard. And so he planted a small pecan tree. My father saw a chance for a practical joke. Now, you know, most pecan trees take 10 years before they begin to produce any fruit or nuts. Well, my father, and as I understand it, went out in the woods and climbed a pecan tree and cut off some twigs with pecans on them. And then the next night, under the cover of darkness, went out and attached these all over this man's pecan tree. And when he got up the next morning, my tree has produced fruit. It takes time to produce fruit. But sometimes where we are along that continuum, <laughs> we have to sort of attach the fruit to us, don't we? It's a command. One of the fruit of the Spirit that is so evident is we are obedient to the commands of Christ. And that's present from the moment of our conversion, although we grow in it. Sometimes we have to attach the fruit. But essentially, it is that Holy Spirit producing the character of God within us. Essential. It's essential. It is a sine non quon without it. We really are not children of our Heavenly Father. And then next, Paul, in verses 4 to 7, paints this beautiful, beautiful picture of love. On November 8, celebrating Nancy Harkin's 39th birthday, she had a personal showing of her art at the Tulsa Garden Center. Many of us were there. Now, while looking at Nancy's art and meditating on it, I could get very, very close. Take a magnifying glass. Hmm. I wonder if she moved the brush to the right or the left in doing this. Hmm. Ah, look at this water and the light reflected. Let me get my magnifying. How did she do that? Hmm. Interesting hues. Let me examine that. I wonder what colors she combined to get that hue. Hmm. You see, I can look at her paintings that way. <laughs> but if I do, I'm sure I'm missing something. How much better to step back several feet and look at that painting in its entirety and allow what Nancy was attempting to say in that painting 
to speak to my soul. If I dissect it, <laughs> that doesn't happen. Sometimes I think we rob portions of Scripture by overly exegeting and dissecting them. Especially true of the Psalms. And frankly, I think it's true of verses 4 through 7 of this, of this portion of God's Word. Instead of parsing every word, <laughs> what does this mean, fitting it all together? How much better to step back and just listen. Just listen. And we get this beautiful picture of agape love. Love is patient. Love is kind, is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I don't know about you, but for me as I just listen to those beautiful words, one of those beautiful things comes forth that I cannot even define or describe. But there is an impression made upon my soul that actually changes me to the beauty of what the apostle has written. And then Paul speaks of the superiority of agape because of its everlasting quality. Verses 8 to 13. The gifts of prophecy, gifts of language, gifts of knowledge, which the Corinthians so proudly displayed are but temporary activities. They're not for eternity. Now, it doesn't mean they're wrong. As a matter of fact, you notice the very first verse following this, Paul says, pursue love, but also the greater gifts. So it's not wrong. But without love, it is wrong. What is the perfect to which Paul refers? He said, when the perfect comes, I will know even as I am fully known. Now, cessationists argue that the perfect is the canon of Scripture. In other words, once the canon was complete, then the spiritual gifts ended, and that's what Paul meant when he talked about the perfect. The perfect is the 66 books of the Protestant Bible. Of course, that doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense, first of all, because neither Paul nor the Corinthians had any concept of a canon. Communication by letter. Neither can it be true because Paul said when the perfect comes, his imperfect, his partial understanding, his partial knowing would end. He would then know fully because face to face he had seen the perfect. When I leave this life, what will I take with me? I won't take prophecy or tongues or knowledge. They'll be unnecessary when I come to the full presence of my Lord. I won't need to walk by faith anymore because that 
which I have believed now is reality. I won't have to take hope with me because hope is realized. What will I take with me beyond the grave into eternity? Or at the coming of Jesus, what will I take with me? Wouldn't it be glorious if he came today? I'll tell you what, sometimes we are surrounded by so many problems. We pray, Lord, let this be the day my race ends. Let me come home. But we think of all the people whose lives would be difficult if God said yes. But oh, if Jesus would come, it'd all be wonderful, wouldn't it? Come, Lord Jesus. What will I take with me? I will take agape love. Because that is the defining trait of my personhood in Christ Jesus. 1 John 4.16, we have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and this God of love abides in him. What a beautiful truth. We take that into eternity. Let's stand on the back of our bulletins is 1 Corinthians 13. Let's just read this together as we close this morning. And this is the King James Version. (laughs) Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as also I am known. 